Well, if you were paying attention when Tara read the scripture passages this morning, you probably noticed that we are looking at two different encounters that Jesus had with two very different men. The first man is a blind beggar. He spent his time outside the city gates. His life consisted of of sitting and, and begging and relying on maybe the mercy or the kindness or even the pity of those who pass by. The other man was a rich tax collector. He had a lucrative job within the Roman establishment. He lived within the city. He not only has all of his necessities met, but he uh, probably had a lot of the luxuries that those around him could only dream about. And from the outside, these two men could not seem more different. And yet, as we will see this morning, these two men are actually remarkably the same. Both of them share the most fundamental of all human needs, which is salvation that comes through the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And as so as we look at these texts this morning, I think it's also helpful to remember uh, that the main character here is Jesus Christ. Like it would be easy to get distracted by the blind man and the things that he says and the things that he does, or to be distracted by Zacchaeus and his stature, and miss the fact that the main character in both of these narratives is Jesus. Like Jesus is doing something for two different people. And so, yes, we can learn from these men's responses to Jesus, but let's not forget that these narratives are meant to teach us something about the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So let's begin by looking at Jesus and this blind beggar. Now, just a note of geography for us. Luke begins by telling us that Jesus is on his way uh, and drawing near to Jericho. If you remember, Jesus has essentially been on a long journey ever since Luke chapter 9 on his way to Jerusalem so that he might go and surrender his life and die and rise again. And on his way, he is about to pass through Jericho. And you you might think, well, wait a minute. Jericho sounds really familiar. I think I remember that name at some place. Maybe you you went with a grandparent to Sunday school for a time or two, and you remember maybe a a song about Jericho, or maybe in VBS you kind of made a, 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 a wall of bricks and you kind of walked around it chanting and singing and then you got to kick all the bricks down. Well, in the Old Testament, God had made some promises to his people, the Israelites, and one of those promises was that he was going to give them land. And that land, that promised land, was entered into by the Israelite people as they crossed the Jordan River, and yet that was an already occupied land. So when the Israelites got to the promised land, they found, guess what? Somebody's in our seats, right? Somebody's there ahead of us. And it was the people of Jericho. In fact, it was a, it was a formidable city with huge walls and huge fortifications. And God promised to give this land to his people, and he accomplished victory for his people in the city of Jericho, not by the edge of the sword, not by their overwhelming military might, but by calling them to obedience, to march around the city 
and on the seventh day to march around the city seven times and then to give a loud shout and to blow the trumpet. So the band was supposed to play and the people were supposed to celebrate. And as they did that, if you've read the narrative, you know what happens next. The walls of the city were destroyed by God himself. And God accomplished victory. God demonstrated his power that he was the one who was going to fulfill these covenantal promises to his people. And then Jesus arrives on the scene hundreds of years later. And Jesus began his ministry by going into the synagogue and by taking the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and by opening that scroll to Uh, to read the portion where it, it prophesied about the Messiah to come, and specifically where it said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. And then Jesus begins his earthly ministry and he not only calls people to repent and believe, which is the core and the most important part of his ministry, but he demonstrates his power. He demonstrates the power of the new covenant and he demonstrates that he is the Messiah by performing these very works that Isaiah said he would perform that Jesus then said, I've come to perform. And one of those was to heal the blind. And he does that now near the city of Jericho. Yes, the same city where in the Old Testament God demonstrated that he would confirm his covenant, that he would keep his covenantal promises to his people. Now Jesus is doing the very same thing. He is fulfilling the covenantal promises, the new covenant promises of God for the people of God by healing this blind man. So this is not just a geographical kind of passing note. Oh, yeah, it just happened to be in Jericho. I think Luke wants us to see this. In fact, both of these men are going to be transformed through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ near or in the city of Jericho. Let's read a bit of this text together. Beginning in verse 35, the word of the Lord says... As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now let's just pause there for a minute. Jesus is on his way into the city, and alongside the road there sits a a beggar who's blind. We don't know how long he's been blind. It, It seems as though perhaps... He was not blind for his entire life up until this point because he actually asked Jesus to restore his sight. But regardless, think about the utter dependence of this blind man. In the first century, there were very few social services and resources for the blind to receive even the basic necessities of life. His only hope was to beg. His only hope was the kindness and the generosity or maybe even just the pity of those who pass by. So as he sits along the roadside begging one day, maybe the the crowd began to get a little bit louder. Maybe he sensed that there was some anticipation and some excitement in the air. And so he asks, hey, what is all of this about? What's the excitement about? And he hears Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. 
Now, we don't know what he knew about Jesus at this time. But we do know what he does next. And what he does next is to cry out to Jesus. And actually, what's important in his cry is that his cry reveals more than just his need for money. It reveals something about his understanding of the Messiah. Look at verse 38. He cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. A couple of things to notice here in this man's cry to Jesus that seems to indicate he knew who Jesus actually was. Notice he calls Jesus the son of David. Now this is a title from the Old Testament, and back then it was predicted that the Messiah would come from the line of David. Yes, the same David that defeated Goliath, the same David who became king. That's the same David that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God comes and God makes a special covenantal promise with David that he would send the Messiah through the line of David. The Messiah would be a descendant of David. And Gabriel, you remember when Gabriel comes in Luke chapter 1 to Mary, Gabriel implies that this same promise would come true, that this Jesus would be the son of David. And so this blind man isn't just arbitrarily referring to Jesus' lineage. He's acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah. There's another piece of evidence that shows us that this blind man believes Jesus to be the Messiah. Because when Jesus asks, what can I do for you? The blind man does not ask for money. Now, he likely, up until this time, had regularly asked for money or for food. More than likely, that's been kind of his, his routine every single day, crying out for money, crying out for food. But here he asks for what only God can do. He asks for a miracle. Lord, let me recover my sight. Now, you don't, and I don't, typically ask someone for something uh, when we know that that person has zero potential to give us what we ask for. So between services, I was holding a little toddler, and, uh, and I didn't ask him for 20 bucks thinking, you know, it'd be nice to have 20 bucks because then I could go to lunch today. I didn't ask for that because he doesn't have 20 bucks. What we, what we ask of someone reveals what we think about them. So this man asks for his sight. He asks for a miracle. He asks for what only God himself can do. And so Jesus is passing by and this man recognizes this is Jesus. This is more than just a good teacher. And he begins to cry out. And the crowd around him are encouraging him. Yes, cry louder. We'll try to get Jesus' attention for you, right? Wrong. <laughs> it's the opposite of what they do. Look at verse 39. Those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. 
but he cried out more. Like the crowd is trying to actively discourage the blind beggar, but he is not deterred by the discouragements of the crowd. In fact, he cries out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So we've seen what the crowd does. We've seen what the blind beggar does. But what does Jesus do? Notice, and this is so important, Jesus stops. Verse 40, and Jesus stopped. So picture this, amid Jesus' most important of all missions on earth, to accomplish the salvation of all who believe by willingly surrendering his life on the cross to die and to be raised again by the Father three days later. Amid all of the commotion of the crowd and the clamoring of the hundreds, if not thousands of people who wanted to see Jesus and talk to Jesus and be around Jesus and be touched by Jesus and touch Jesus, amid all of that, Jesus hears the quiet, likely hoarse cries of a blind beggar seated somewhere behind the crowd. And he stops. And Jesus commands this man to be brought to him. And can you imagine what that must have been like? Crying out with his weak voice, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Knowing that your voice is being drowned out likely by the louder, by the stronger, by the taller who are in front. Yet all of a sudden, perhaps, some maybe stronger men in the crowd come to you and pick you up or maybe direct you, or guide you over, you're thinking, okay, now, really, they're going to lead me away, right? They've been trying to get me to shut up. Now they're going to take me away from Jesus. Yet the crowds part. This blind man finds that he is standing in front of Jesus himself. And Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? And consider the love and the tenderness of Jesus here. Jesus doesn't impose here, but he asks, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 41, Lord, let me recover my sight. He answered with the most basic of all physical needs that he had. Lord, I want to see. Here's the irony. This man already saw Jesus. He truly saw Jesus. Even when those around him who had physical sight didn't see Jesus. As a matter of fact, this man saw Jesus clearer than the rich young ruler in Luke 18.18 who had probably 20-20 physical sight. And he saw Jesus clearer than the Pharisee from Luke 18, 9, who stood boasting in front of the presence of God in prayer. And he saw Jesus clearer than the rich man from Luke 16, 19. And he saw Jesus clearer than the nine lepers who didn't return and worship Jesus in Luke 17, 11. In fact, this man, this blind man, saw Jesus clearer than most of the people we have already been introduced to in Luke. And Jesus sees 
And Jesus rewards this man's faith. Verse 42. And Jesus said, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. He immediately receives physical sight, and he begins following Jesus, glorifying God, and his glorification of God, his glorifying God, his praising God, leads those around him to praise God as well. Like, this blind beggar became an instrument whereby others were led to praise the Lord. How about you and me? Like, how does our worship lead others to worship? How does the way we live lives of praise lead others to live lives of praise? It's one of the reasons we gather together and we sing. So that we're not only declaring these truths to God and declaring these truths about God, but we are reminding one another as we hear one another's voices about these things that are true of God. So that on the week you come in, or the weeks when you come in, and you gather with the church family, and you're not, you're not feeling so great about your faith, or you're wrestling with doubts, or it's been a hard week, or you're struggling and you come and we gather together and you think, you know what, I know those things on the screen are true about God, but I, I just, oh, I don't know that I feel that this morning. I'm going to kind of sing that. But then you look around and you see brothers and sisters in the faith and you know a bit of some of their stories and you know that there are some that maybe struggled more than you or maybe who have encountered incredible adversity in their life and you see them praising and worshiping the Lord, maybe raising their hands and it has a way of encouraging us, of spurring our worship and our praise on as we witness others praising. But it's not just in our music. Worship is is the way we live our lives in response to the infinite worth of who God is and what he has done. It's as we're in our homes, moms and dads, and, and God answers prayer or God blesses or God helps or we have needs and we bring those regularly to the Lord or God provides something and we stop and we acknowledge as a family, we, yes, God is ultimately the giver of this good gift. Or God is the one we can take our needs to. And so we're going to praise God right now for who he is and what he's done. We're leading others. We're becoming worship leaders whereby others are led to worship the Lord. And that's precisely what this blind beggar does. He goes from the blind beggar who's being told to shut up to now being the worship leader, right? He's like the Matt Thornburg for this entire group who's leading all of these people to praise God because his life has been touched. But now the Holy Spirit turns, Luke, our author, to turn from Jesus' work to seek and save this blind beggar to now Jesus seeking and saving this wealthy tax collector named Zacchaeus. So we're going from one end of the socioeconomic ladder to the far other end of the socioeconomic ladder. Just look at verse 1 of chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. 
There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, let's just pause for a second because if you grew up in the church, you probably have heard of Zacchaeus before. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. Zacchaeus was someone whose life was radically altered by the Lord. Zacchaeus was someone who hosted a meal, a party for the Lord Jesus Christ. Zacchaeus was one who went and sought to right his wrongs. He was one who gave incredible uh, amounts of his wealth away. And yet, if you're like me and you grew up in the church, that's not what you know about Zacchaeus. What you know about when you think of Zacchaeus, thanks is that Zacchaeus was a wee little man, right? (laughs) And a wee little man was he, and he climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. How unfortunate for 2,000 years of church history to be known not for all of these great ways the Lord transformed his life and all the good things the Lord did through him after that, but to be known simply as a wee little man. Yes, Zacchaeus was short. But there are some other really important, in fact, we would argue more important things to know about Zacchaeus. Like the fact that he was a chief tax collector. Lest we think that Jesus has only come to seek and save the blind beggars of the world, the least, the last, and the lost. Yes, Jesus has even come for those who are at the other end of the spectrum, those who are wealthy and have everything that money can buy, even white-collar criminals, corrupt individuals, people who need Jesus. He was a tax collector, and he was rich. Verse 3 says he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was of small stature. And so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So like the blind beggar, Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming and Jesus is about to pass by, but there's a problem. He's short, so he can't see Jesus. And so he discovers this creative solution. He climbs up into a sycamore tree to get above the crowd so that he can see Jesus. Like the blind man, he wants to see Jesus. And also like the blind man, note, Jesus stops for a second time, verse 5. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, we're not told the specific reason why Jesus must go to this man's house, but it appears Jesus' reason is because salvation will come to Zacchaeus today. Don't miss the fact that Jesus notices this man. Again, the crowd is clamoring to see Jesus, the great teacher and the great miracle worker. Zacchaeus can't see Like the beggar, he's probably been pushed to the back. In his case, he can't see above the taller heads around him, and so he climbs into a sycamore tree. This is such a good reminder 
that Jesus sees even when they can't. Zacchaeus, like the blind beggar, can't physically see Jesus. He has to climb into a tree to see Jesus. And yet Jesus sees them both, which is, which is so good for us to remember because we are not saved by our discovery of God, but by his welcome of us. Zacchaeus had no legitimate right to welcome Jesus into his home. He was a corrupt chief tax collector, and yet Jesus stops, and Jesus welcomes himself into Zacchaeus' life. Hey, brothers and sisters, there are times in our lives when we will not be able to see Jesus as clearly as we like. Maybe it's the darkness of, of trial or adversity or the the valley of the shadow of death where it's so dark that we, we cannot see Jesus. Or maybe it's the storms of life that have come and we, we can't even see metaphorically the hand, uh, the hand in front of our face. Or maybe it's suffering that's clouding our vision. Brothers and sisters, there are times when we won't be able to see Jesus, times when our faith is weak and doubts seem large, and yet, friends, our comfort and confidence rests not in our ability to see, but in knowing that we are seen. And Jesus saw this chief tax collector And he invites himself into Zacchaeus' home. Notice Zacchaeus responds with more than just hospitality. Verse 6. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when the crowd saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Just note there, just like with the blind beggar, Zacchaeus is not deterred by the discouragement of the crowd. In fact, more often than not in Luke, the crowd is not what you want to follow because they're leading in the wrong way. They grumble about Jesus' willingness to associate with the lost. But Zacchaeus is not hindered. He's not distracted. He receives Jesus joyfully, and he responds like the rich young ruler should have in Luke 18, 18. Remember when he said, hey, I've, I've, done, I've followed all the law. I've followed all the commandments. I've, I've checked all the boxes. And Jesus said, one thing you still lack. Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor. Then come follow me. And Luke wants us to see through the power of the Holy Spirit who's inspiring him, this is an example of how to follow Jesus. This is what saving faith looks like. He's willing to proactively right his wrongs. He's showing evidence of someone whose life is truly changed. Now this is not the reason he is saved. He is not saved because he gives half his possessions to the poor or because he wants to right his wrongs. Those things are not the foundation or the root of salvation. They're the fruit, they're the evidences of changed life. What we see Zacchaeus doing is he is responding to the identity and the authority of Jesus. 
Again, he is doing what Jesus told the rich young man to, to do in Luke 18, 18. And again, Jesus is telling the rich young man to give all he has to the poor, not because by doing so he will merit eternal life, but because that would be the evidence of a life that recognizes his complete need for Jesus Christ and his complete surrender of everything else he's trusting in. Zacchaeus is demonstrating a heart that has changed. Let's be careful, church, about expecting certain specific signs of those whose lives are changed. We should be so careful about the sorts of external things we expect from those whose lives and hearts are transformed. But let's also be careful of disconnecting salvation from heart change. Like we can't always see heart change. In fact, often we can't see heart change. But over time, heart change will become evident. Maybe not in big ways. Maybe not even in the ways we expect. Maybe not even as quickly as we would like. But transformed hearts lead to transformed affections. And transformed affections lead to transformed living. And that's precisely what we see Zacchaeus evidencing here. This is one who was sought out by Jesus Christ himself and saved by Jesus Christ himself. And now he is on a mission to to be about the kingdom work of Jesus. To follow Jesus with his actions, with his life. I love verse 9. Verse 9, Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house, (laughs) since he is also a son of Abraham. Verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You want Jesus' mission statement? And there's lots of viable candidates throughout Scripture of things that he says. But this would certainly be on the list. Jesus came to seek and to save lost. Whether it is a poor, blind, forgotten person by the rest of society, or the wealthy, influential, powerful, self-sufficient in society. Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. That's why he entered into our world and lived without sin and willingly died on the cross in the place of all who believe It's why the Father raised him from the dead three days later, paying in full the debt we owe for our sin, demonstrating his power over the grave and over death, so that all who today, or 2,000 years ago, or 2,000 years to come, or whenever until Jesus returns, any who turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that he truly died on the cross for our sin, we might be forgiven. We might be saved. We might be given the very Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, to live inside us. We might have a hope, not only now, but a hope for all of eternity, that we are in Christ. And regardless of what this life holds for us, whether it be good or bad, frustrating or incredibly joyful, our future 
to come will be best of all. Because we will be with our Savior. So this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, that would be the call this morning, that you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. If you're here and you are a believer this morning, then these twin narratives not only demonstrate to us the incredible kindness and mercy and grace of our Savior who seeks and saves the lost, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, because no one seeks after God. He came and he sought us and he saved us. But it's also a reminder, isn't it, that we now as the people of God are called, just like the blind man, to be worship leaders. (laughs) And like Zacchaeus, we are to be about the very kingdom priorities of the God who has saved us. We are called to be the ambassadors, to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Whether that's in France, whether that's globally around the world, or whether that's right here in Dayton. It's both of those things. We're called on this mission now, regardless of background, regardless of where someone is socioeconomically, regardless of what someone knows or doesn't know, regardless of what they have or don't have. We are called to be about this same good news of great joy because we serve a Savior who seeks and saves the lost. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, we are we are eternally grateful to you that you would send your son into our world to seek and to save the lost. That is our only hope in life and death as we, as we sing. Father, we pray that you would be about that saving work this morning for the one or two or five in this room or watching online who are not trusting in you today. God, would you open their eyes? They would see your glory, that they would see their utter need for you They would see the beauty and the wonder and the joy and the eternal hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they would turn by faith and trust and believe. And Father, for those of us who are trusting and who are walking by faith, God, that you would not only deepen our worship, our lives of worship as a result of your seeking and saving work through Jesus, but that you would also give us a boldness as you involve us in this very work. We don't on our own save anyone. But you have called us to be ambassadors, to join in on this same mission statement. (laughs) Seek and to save the lost through the power of Jesus. Help us to do that and give us a joy as we do that work. In the glorious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.